we lead the world in facing down a threat to decency and humanity. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. Listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the Faustian Path. Now, many people have probably heard of the name Faust. It's very largely circulated in the occult fraternities and in speaking, in philosophy, and of course, all things occultic. Where does this come from, and how did it get adopted into this notion of occultism? as it has. Well, we're going to explore that avenue of thought tonight. We're going to see some of the history behind this, where it comes from, how it's been adopted into the various systems of the secret society groups and whatnot. We'll be reading from a book titled Lords of the Left Hand Path, A History of Spiritual Descent by Stephen E. Flowers, 1997 publication. Interesting book, if you haven't picked it up. It's worth reading to understand some of the ideologies that are behind the left-hand path, as it is called, in some of these occult schools. They defend many of these things that we would associate with the dark side or the evil side of things. They have a lot of justifications that they give in these types of books for their actions and their adoption of the left-hand path. They say it is a necessity in this world. Are they wrong about that? I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I could just tell you what it is that they believe and what they teach. And I can offer my counterpoints to that. Because I honestly don't think the left-hand path is a proper path for any person to take. It ultimately leads to your destruction. As is borne out by example after example. And we'll see in the study of Faust here, how that holds true even with this. So let's see what Mr. Flowers has to say here about the Faustian path. 
At the end of the medieval period in Germany, a whole tradition of magic arose which was associated with the name of Dr. Faustus. The tradition originated at a time contemporary with other great magical thinkers, such as Agrippa von Nettischheim and Paracelsus von Hohenheim, and the spiritual revolutionary Martin Luther. The study of the Faustian tradition is best understood on several levels. There is the actual historical man, probably named George Faustus, the legends which grew up around and attached themselves to his figure after his death, which occurred around 1540, and the subsequent complex artistic tradition which actually continues to grow. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So there was an actual figure named Dr. Faustus, believed to be George Faustus, who died around 1540, and certain legends cropped up around this figure. And, of course... The famous rendition of Faust by Goethe is probably the one that's most held up. But we'll continue here, and we'll see what this says about that. Without doubt, since the demise of the ancient ways in the north, this man was one of the first new masters of the left-hand path. For through magic and dealing with the dark side, he managed to become part of myth and legend, and has become thereby immortal going to pause for a moment here, folks. This figure's been mythologized, and in a sense, the memory of this figure has become immortal. Does that mean the spirit or the person himself has become immortal? Not necessarily, but of course, the occultists would probably like to think in those ways. Perhaps, according to the occultists, he's become one of the thousand points of light. His star in the sky... That's what the stars are all about, according to some of these occult traditions. You become one of the thousand points of light. And this is a multifaceted reference, and pun fully intended there. This also refers to the facets of the finished Philosopher's Stone, the thousand points of light. This would be synonymous with thinking in terms of a diamond, a rough diamond, and then it slowly becomes cut and shaped over time to take on its beautiful form with all the different facets etched within. And this is part of the notion of the Philosopher's Stone, wherein you achieve these thousand points of light or these thousand facets of the hewn stone when it becomes fully crafted. So there's multiple levels of meaning here, and some of them would equate this to the stars in the sky as well. If you become immortal in this way, you become a star in the sky, according to certain traditions. And we see how all these things kind of cross over here. And the notion being conveyed here by Mr. Flowers is that Faust became immortalized in this way, among those of the occultists. They see him as having transcended now because of the way that his acts and his deeds and his personality has been recorded and mythologized now. So now he's become a figure that's important in a certain aspect to many who practice the left-hand path, especially here. So let's read on and we'll see what else we could find out about this figure. The historical Faust was probably born in or near Niddington in southwestern Germany in 1480, 
and died near there at Stauffen in 1539 or 1540. He was born with the first name George. In early tradition, changes the name to Johann or Johannes for some unknown reason. The name or title Faust or Faustus could either be from the plain German name Faust, which means fist or club, with the addition of the Latin ending U.S., or it could be a later title from Latin Faustus, which means favored or lucky one. It has been noted that Simon Megus also went by that title in Latin. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. For those who are unaware, Simon Megus is an extremely important figure. Too many of these secret society groups, especially those that lean towards this left-hand path tradition, groups like the OTO and the Argentium Astrum, they put a lot of reverence on this type of a notion of Simon Megus, and some claim that Simon Megus and Jesus are one and the same person in these occult fraternities. I'm not kidding about that. We may have covered that on some previous broadcasts, but they put a note of importance on this Simon Megus character, and now he's saying that Simon Megus took on this Latin title, Faustus, favored or lucky one. So let's continue on now that we made that point. In one primary document, he also calls himself Sibilicus. This could be a mythic reference to the ancient tribe in Italy called the Sibilians, thought to be experts in magic, or perhaps it is only a Latinization of his ordinary name, which might have been Zabel, Z-A-B-E-L. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we have this intriguing mystery around this personage, the real persona behind the legend of Faust. And it seems that it's become so mythologized, it becomes difficult to separate the historical figure from the legends about him. And this happens so often in a lot of these types of things. We see that in a more modern type of a way. If you look back at the life and times of Aleister Crowley and all the stories that have come out about him, that's a little closer to the modern era. And we see how the mythology has surrounded him as well. So we have these different figures and we don't know what's actually historically true or not about some of the things that are recorded about them. You see, they've become synonymous with the fictionalized version of themselves in the modern era through time. And this is kind of what happens with a lot of these figures in the occult. Oftentimes they are posthumously attributed with having done things that perhaps they didn't really do, it's just part of the legend. We see this surrounding other figures, too. Figures of importance within the occult fraternities. Figures like St. Germain has had many things attributed to him that are not true. But it adds to the mystique of the mythology around it. But let's continue reading here. It says, Whatever the man's name, there are some definite details of his life and travels, even if these details are scanty. He was reputed to be an expert, if only semi-learned, in magic, astrology, necromancy, and all the occult arts of his day. From about 1507 to 1513, he lived and taught on a freelance basis in Heidelberg, where he came to be known as the demigod of Heidelberg. 
1513, he was active in Erfurt, where he conjured images of Homeric myth while giving lectures to awestruck students. In the 1520s, he lived in or near Wittenberg, the epicenter of Protestantism where Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the church door in 1517. At least at the beginning of this time, in 1520, he appears to have been employed by the Roman Catholic Bishop of Bamberg, which suggests all sorts of intrigues. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So we have, once again, some of these historical accounts of where he was and the things that he did. How much of it can we prove to be true and how much is myth? It's hard to say for sure. A document from the city of Ingolstadt dated 17 June 1528, states that Faust was forcibly exiled from the city, but only after he had vowed not to take magical vengeance on the city leaders. It appears that Faust was often eventually ejected from cities where he made impact. He always lived in university towns and taught and influenced students there, but not as part of the official faculty. Magically, the claimed to have re restored the lost teachings of Plato and Aristotle, and to be equal, the miracles of Christ. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So these are some big claims here. So magically, he claimed to have restored the lost teachings of Plato and Aristotle, and he was able to equal the miracles of Christ. This is a big claim by this fellow, who was the historical figure that is at the heart of the legend of Faust here. Let's continue on. In 1534, there is evidence that Faust wrote a set of predictions for the German explorer Philip von Hutton before a voyage to South America. Von Hutton wrote to his brother in 1540 to confirm the predictions. During his career, Faust is said to have openly declared that his knowledge and power were the result of a pact he had made with the devil. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Always the same story with a lot of this, and you see where much of the legend has come from. What do you think it is to make a Faustian bargain? Of course we have this notion attached. Always is, always will be with these left-hand path type of teachings. Let's go ahead and read on. Whenever he was exhorted to repent and return to the church, he would reply that he preferred to remain loyal to the devil because he, quote, has fairly kept what he promised me, and therefore I intend to keep fairly what I have promised and signed away to him, end quote. Shortly before his death, Faust returned to his native region in southwestern Germany and was found dead in the city of Stauffen. His enemies assumed he had been taken to hell, Approximately 33 years after he first came on the scene as a disciple of the devil in Heidelberg in 1507. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. 33 years. What a coincidence with these numbers, right? <laughs> I don't have enough faith to be a coincidence theorist. But we see, even in the tradition here, they always play the, the number game with a lot of this stuff. So, in this tradition, 33 years from the time he first came forward and claimed to have made this pact with the devil, he was found dead. You see, maybe that's part of the bargain. The devil is in the details, after all, and the number 33 is very popular with these occult fraternities, especially certain groups, as we all know. 
Let's continue on here. In the years immediately after Faust's death, legends and tales about his life proliferated and grew in magnitude. Even in Faust's lifetime, his exploits were being merged with those of legendary magicians. Within 25 to 30 years of his death, a Latin manuscript concerning him was written by an anonymous student in Wittenberg. A German translation of this text was made sometime in the 1570s, and the Latin original was eventually lost. The German edition of the first Faustbach, or Faust book, was published by Johann Spies in 1587 at Frankfurt and M. M. Mayen. Its full title reveals much of its nature and purpose. And it says, quote here, this is the title, History of Dr. Johann Faustus, the notorious magician and necromancer, how he sold himself to the devil for an appointed time, what strange adventures he saw in that interval, himself inventing some and living through others, until he received at last his well-deserved requital, end quote. It's a long title for a book. <laughs> they like to use very descriptive titles for a lot of these types of works. Especially back then, it was a different kind of writing than what we have now. The attention spans were much better back then. They had a better grasp of language, I think, than we do now. So that's all another story for another time. But let's go ahead and we'll continue on here. The book was immensely popular. It went through several reprintings that year, and the text was exported at once to England as well as to France in 1598 and Holland in 1592. A new edition of Faust Book appeared compiled by George Rudolph Widman in 1599, which contained more sensationalistic material and an even more moralistic tone. The main purpose of the early Faust books appear to have been to make as much money as possible off of a lurid account of a wretched sinner, and at the same time to preach with righteous indignation against the prideful excesses of the human spirit. This combination of puerile fascination and religious intolerance mixed with a profit motive is not foreign to our world today. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. I don't disagree with Mr. Flowers on that point. We often see much of that in today's society as well. A lot of people like to take advantage of the moralistic leanings of people and the religious beliefs of people. And they like to go ahead and push the envelope with this fascination of the dark side of things. And we do see a lot of that that goes on. We do see a lot of that. But anyway, let's get back to it here. It has been noted that the books are of a strongly orthodox Lutheran bias with anti-papal sentiments. In them, the evil Dr. Faustus is sometimes contrasted with the good Dr. Luther. Basically, the early Faust books were reflections of the ordinary and still medieval prejudices, prejudices of the masses of the 16th and 17th centuries. The Faust legend, as recounted in these books, became the main source for later literary tre treatments. In the Faust book, the hero, or villain, is portrayed as a peasant's son who inherits a fortune. 
he goes to Wittenberg to study theology. He is talented, but displays unusual characteristics which make him suspect. After a while, he abandons theology and takes up magic and medicine. In time, he becomes a great physician, knowing the secrets of herbology and drugs. This, no doubt, is a reflection of the historical figure of Paracelsus. But all this soon leads to his conjuration of demonic entities, and finally the signing of a pact with Mephistopheles. In this age, when it was still thought that, quote, seekers of knowledge outside the church were suspected of traffic with the minions of hell, end quote, it was widely believed that such a quest would be expressed through just such a pact with the devil. This would be in the form of a legal contract in which the seeker promised his soul in return of sinful indulgence or knowledge for a specific period. In most Faust stories, this was for 24 years. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we have this notion of a 24-year pact with the devil as opposed to the 33 years, allegedly in the historical figure's account of things, as given here by Mr. Flowers. So that being the case, we see we have a nine-year differential there. Is this meaningful? I can't say for sure. Don't want to read more into things than what's there, but we do traditionally, in many of the writings, it does equate a 24-year pact with Faust. Now, this could represent a lot of different things. 24 hours in a day. There's a lot of ways you could split this all up, for sure, if you want to get into the symbology of the numbers involved. But that's not really the avenue of thought we're exploring tonight. I just wanted to go through some of the history of how this Faustian path, or this notion of this Faustian bargain situation came about into the modern literature and into modern occultism. So we're getting into that. So we see there was a historical figure that much of this is based on. And we didn't even get to one of the most famous works about it yet. So we'll get there and we'll figure out more of this. We'll put down some of the footwork here and connect the dots and see where it all stands right now. But let's continue reading. After the pact is signed, Faust is indulged in all kinds of things. He receives food, drink, clothing, money, as well as knowledge about hell and the demons. He travels widely over all of Europe. He loves to go play practical jokes on the Pope in Rome and the Sultan in Constantinople. Faust also visits Egypt and Asia, where he even sees the Garden of Eden. But Faust soon turns his attentions to love. He summons Helen of Troy and spends years indulging in sexual excesses. In the end, Faust is overcome with remorse and fear, and at a last supper with his students, he exhorts them to follow Christ. But on his last night, Faust is indeed taken to hell by a horde of fiendish spirits. In the first German Faust books, the chief sins of the magician are his speculative interests. That is, his attempts to discover ways to enjoy pleasures which medieval morality stigmatized as having their origins in the seven deadly sins, pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. As we know, the Faust material at once went over to England where it struck a responsive chord. 
the poet Christopher Marlowe, began his drama, The Tragical History, The Life and Death of Dr. Faustus, as early as 1588, probably finished it around 1590. But it was not printed until 1604. Marlowe was the first to write at all sympathetically about Faust and bring the ideas of the Renaissance to his subject. In the tragical history, it is clear that Faustus sells his soul not only for pleasure but for knowledge and power. It is his will to become an earthly god through magic and to be able to direct worldly politics by influencing the Pope and Holy Roman Emperor. Despite whatever sympathies Marlowe might have had with his subject, in the end Faustus is condemned, as in all the Faust books. The complete Faustian treatment of Faust remained for a more Faustian man to complete. J.W. von Goethe, we shall return to a transformed Faust in the next chapter. going to pause for a second here, folks. I'm not sure how far into this we'll get, but certainly Goethe is the one who made this whole Faust idea famous in the modern era, especially to the modern-day occultists. So, this is the history of where this comes from. So we see this character, Faust, is based upon an actual individual who lived at some point and was said to have indulged in some of these things, who have toyed with the magical studies, the occult studies, and was said to have sold his soul to the devil. And we have these fictional accounts. He's become mythologized now. And it's hard to say where the division is between the real living person and the myth or the legend surrounding it now. So the important thing is we have these stories. And this is the archetype that's brought forward. You see, in this portrayal of this persona in the fictionalized form, it has become a type of an archetype. It's taken on a type of life of its own. So, in a sense, maybe Faust did become immortal in a way, as an archetype, because we're all familiar with the term Faustian bargain. We're all familiar with that notion. It's the making of a deal with the devil in order to gain some temporary advantage. We've all heard that expression. So, who knows? Maybe there is something to that idea. I don't think that that equates one-on-one -on -one with the spirit or soul of a person becoming immortal in that sense. But, that being the case, we have this archetype now that's become present. It's been very much leveraged and utilized by many who follow this dark path. Let's continue on here. So, Flowers goes on here to say, the Faustian tradition is not limited to the historical personage of Faust or the artistic fictionalizations of his adventures. There is also a tradition of practical magical manuals or grimoires which were reputed to be the very texts actually used by the magician to conjure spirits and demons. These are important because they show that the tradition was not merely literary, but reflected an authentic school of magical operations. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So this here 
is the important part. This is where the rubber meets the road with this. So even though we have the fictionalized mythology of this figure and the things surrounding him, the real person was said to be practicing from some of these older works that are attributed to his use here and that these things do exist and there's an entire magical operation system built around it. This is what's being claimed here. This is what many of them believe. Whether it's true or not is irrelevant. They believe it to be true. So because they believe it to be true that there was an actual Faust and there is actually Faustian magic to be had out there and utilized, they act upon these beliefs and the things they do to act upon these beliefs will affect us. So whether it's true or not is irrelevant. They believe it to be true. They act as if it's true. And they use some of these older works as a framework to build upon that. So whether or not there's anything to it, like I said, doesn't much matter. What does matter is there are people in positions of power in this world that believe this stuff works and they will do everything they can to utilize it to their advantage. And the things they do to act upon their beliefs will affect all of us. Now, are there really Faustian bargains to be made? Well, we've been exploring some of these magical systems on other episodes here. And I think maybe, maybe, there are some kernels of truth sprinkled through a lot of this stuff. And these things are not something that should be tinkered with by mankind. But there are those that attempt it anyway. And stories like the story of Faust is a fair warning against that for people. But yet there are still those driven by this desire for worldly power that would make that trade. And that's what many on this left-hand path do. It's the old free lunch principle. Think of the character Wimpy from the old Popeye cartoons. I'd gladly... I'd gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. It's the same notion here. A lot of these people, they want to have the worldly knowledge and the power and the delights and desires of their heart now and not worry about some future time when they have to pay the piper. Because, see, oftentimes in their hubris, they think that their desire for this worldly power and their trading for this worldly power, this knowledge, that somehow in that time in between their granting of this, this power or knowledge and the time that it's time to pay the piper, they think somehow in their hubris that in that in-between time that somehow they'll be powerful enough and smart enough and knowledgeable enough to find a way to overcome that or to break that deal. And that's not the case. But people become twisted when they come become bent on acquiring this type of knowledge and these types of magical abilities. Oftentimes they overinflate their egos to the point where they think they can be very much like God. Which you see, you saw the allusion to that here earlier with this Faust fellow thought he could be a god on earth, be godlike. So in that type of hubris, 
they somehow think that they're going to overcome the devil, the one they made the pact with, the one that's giving them that knowledge. Here's a little secret. An oppressor is not going to give you the knowledge and the means to get out of your oppression from them. That's common sense. But some of these people lack the common sense. They think somehow they're going to outsmart this being by having this being grant them some special knowledge or ability. Doesn't make sense, but that's part and parcel of the left-hand path. It's kind of like the analogy of the Star Wars stories. With the Sith, there's always two. There's the the Master and the Apprentice, and of course the Apprentice always seeks to somehow destroy the Master and take his place. Same kind of thing here. Except the Apprentice never takes the Master's place. That's a lie. That's the carrot that's dangled before those on the dark path. That they could somehow become the big bad. Not necessarily the case. Never seems to happen. But that's beside the point. I want to get back to the reading here. So we just read that these are important because they show that the tradition was not merely literary, but reflected an authentic school of magical operations. In German culture of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, the Faustians were not only exhorted by literature to follow in the footsteps of their exemplary model, but were provided with practical manuals purporting to tell them how to do just that. There are a number of manuscripts referred to as Faustian grimoires, supposedly ones used or written by him. Most are in German, though some are in Latin. These were collected as early as 1846 in J. Scheibel's series Das Klauster. They bear titles such as Dr. Faustin's Dreifacher Hollenswang, which means Dr. Faust's Threefold Conjuration of Hell, and I'm not going to try to attempt the German in the next one. I'll butcher it. <laughs> no good with German. But the other one's called Faust's Black Raven, as it translates into English. These works are part of the same general tradition that gave rise to the sixth and seventh books of Moses, examples of which were also produced in Germany at about this time. Almost all of these books appear to have been supplied with false dates and places of publication. The printed dates sometimes go back before Faust's time. Well, the places, including Rome and Vienna, betray an interest in making the magical practices contained in them, particularly Roman Catholic. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So the authenticity of these books are also in question. These ones that are claimed to either have been written by Faust himself or used by Faust, these older books that outline this type of a system or Faustian path, well, they're, they're questionable as to their authenticity, their dates and times of publication. Were these really published before the time of Faust, or were they just posthumously written and then attributed to those older times? Hard to say. There's an air of mystery about this stuff. There usually is. And like I said, oftentimes with these things, doesn't matter if it's truly, truly, authentically 
proclaimed how it is, if you understand my meaning by that. I know that sounds a little bit like word salad. Let me see if I could clarify a little better. With this stuff, sometimes they will come out with some of these types of grimoires or something, and the timing of these grimoires is in question, and the authorship of these grimoires is in question. But it is ascribed to the mythology around the certain figures that are claimed to be associated with these grimoires. So just those claims alone make them important in a sense, whether they truly had something to do with it or not. That's the point I'm trying to make. So regardless of what you think, whether this Faust fellow really wrote these grimoires or collected some of these older writings and put them together, and we have this system that's based around this or not, it's irrelevant because, you see, the occultists believe it, and they apply methodologies towards this, and that's what makes it important. Because if you study this stuff for long enough, eventually you'll come across a a little philosophy or idea known as chaos magic. And if you explore the avenues of thought that are associated with this chaos magic, the whole theory behind its operation is it doesn't matter what the belief system is, there just needs to be a belief system in place, and then these magical operations will work. So whether it's this belief in this Faust fellow having some type of power and having put together this system and received results with it or not, that is what kind of empowers the idea. Whether it's true or not, it's irrelevant, you see. Doesn't matter to the chaos magicians, and I would think this applies across all these different magical paths that they seem to put forward. Doesn't matter what the belief system is behind it. They have found that for some reason or another, it works as long as they have that belief in this system. So, that being the case, that's a topic for another day. We'll have to maybe tear into that one a little bit at another time, but you have similar notions that go on with things like this where there's been a mythology built around it and a system of magic built around it. The same thing can be said of a truly, purely fictional set of characters. And of course, I'm talking about things like Cthulhu, if you've seen the Cthulhu stories, and all of those other various works of fiction that were written by that particular fellow, and I think you know who I'm talking about, even though he had allegedly no ties to these occult fraternities. I don't know if that's true or not either, because there are some claims that he had an uncle or a grandfather or something that was very heavily involved with the Egyptian rites of Freemasonry, and that perhaps he had gotten a hold of some of these older texts about the old gods, the ancient ones, this kind of thing, and built his mythology and his storytelling around this. So, of course, I'm talking about H.P. Lovecraft, if you didn't pick up on that yet. So there's an actual system of Lovecraftian magic out there that's formed around this as well. So regardless of whether it's true or not, this is acknowledged fiction. They've built magical workings and operations around this system. And they claim to get results with it. So that, that's, that's the whole point here. So regardless of what your stance is on whether it's true or not, 
It doesn't matter to the occultists because they seem to think that there is something that works behind it. They get results with it. So they don't even really care if it's true or not. They just know that the tradition is there and that it works and that if they follow these steps, they'll get the results they're looking for. So that's the whole point here. And I think this ties to this Faustian path idea as well. So I know this this gets a little deep. This is not the 101 level stuff. If you're looking for 101 level types of talks on these things, you're in the wrong place. You might have to go back and listen to a couple hundred hours before you could catch up with this. If you've been listening to my programs here for any length of time, you know we dig deep into these things and that this is beyond the 101 level into these types of things. So I like digging deep and finding out some of this stuff because once you get into what it is that these people believe, you understand why they do the things they do and perhaps to an extent how they get things done at points. So there are results that they get by following and practicing some of these things, some of these operations that are said to be on the left-hand path. But they always seem to have to pay the piper in the end, and that's the whole point here. And that's the notion of this Faustian path, as we'll see as we continue. So we see here that it tended towards Roman Catholic type of belief systems here in some of the works. So it says, the type of magical practices reflected in these books is fairly standard for medieval sorcery. The magician draws a circle around himself, which is full of prayers, names of God, or sacred symbols meant to protect him. Outside the circle, there is a place, sometimes within a triangle, where the sign or sigil of the spirit to be summoned is placed. Then, through prayers, conjurations, and even threats, the magician calls up the angel or demon to his presence in the triangle outside the circle before him. Once there, the magician deals with the entity, bargaining with it to try to obtain the particular gifts which correspond to that entity. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, as I've alluded to before, many of these belief systems are common between all of these various secret society groups and occult fraternities that claim to practice magic. You see a lot of common threads to all of it. And, of course, we have the association of the magic circle and, of course, the, the triangle and summoning or conjuring spirits of some sort and making some type of deal with them or even threatening them in some way to try to get what you want from them. These are not good ideas, in my view. Human beings, we don't know what in the world we're dealing with. We were never intended to tinker with these types of spiritual forces at all. Doesn't end well, as we'll see as we read on here. Yet there are some that still, in their hubris, become convinced that somehow they'll get the better of it. <laughs> they'll become a master or an adept at some point, and maybe become one of the thousand points of light, and they'll be oh so powerful. They'll become a type of god. They'll achieve apotheosis. They'll have control over this, and they'll be all-powerful somehow. They get deluded by this idea, 
and it ultimately leads to their demise. But let's read on here. Flowers continues, and he says, In essence, this kind of magic, whether it deals with angels or demons, is a right-hand path practice insofar as it keeps the source of power and divinity, or diabolism, outside the self and the magician. In the final analysis, it will not be the power or gifts bestowed upon the Faustian magician which will lead to his becoming a god-man, but the breadth and depth of experience provided by this magic. It is what the Faustian magician learns from his quest into the realms of the unknown, beyond the limitations of time and space, that is the secret of the Black Raven. I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we hear this admission from the, this person who claims to be understanding the left-hand path. And he says that this type of conjuring or summoning of these angels or demons, you see, this isn't a left-hand path thing. This is a right-hand path thing. It's not bad to do this. He says that conjuring these things outside of oneself, well, that's right-hand path. So you see the distinction here that they're trying to make? And this is all false as well. Sorry, that's no better than inviting something in to yourself, into your body, to take possession thereof. It's a slippery slope. But these people like to play these games. You see how they will use different justifications as to how they're the good guys. Yes, we summon these demonic things, but we, we summon them in the circle outside of ourself. That's right-hand path. You see what he says here? And he's also saying that in the final analysis, it says it will not be the power or gifts bestowed upon the Faustian magician, which makes him a god-man, but it's through his experiences using the magic that he becomes such. Like I said, this is the hubris of these people. They think at some point they'll become so good at this, so smart, and know what they're doing, and so powerful, that they will overcome these beings that they made this pact or deal with. It's this hubris that blinds them. And ultimately, it leads to their destruction. Let's read on here. So now he told us that the Faustian magician learns the realms of the unknown beyond the limitations of time and space, and that is the secret of the Black Raven. Very important symbol to the occult, the Raven. Let's read on and see what else he says here. So Flowers continues and he says, the legends and even the motivation for the publication of the grimoires had a purely right-hand path bent. The creators and publishers of the material were trying to hold on to medieval thinking and philosophical morality for as long as possible and keep their societies in its thrall. One authority puts it well when he says, quote, Numerous are the legends built up around the personalities of men who defied the taboos of their times and sought to probe the unknown nature of man and the universe. Their strength lay in their magic, their power over the right word. Their weakness lay in their isolation, which invited distrust and condemnation. End quote. 
The Western Middle Ages were singularly inhospitable to left-hand path philosophy. Because of the essentially anti-human bias of official church dogmas, which tended to dominate the period. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. Woe to he who calls evil good and good evil. And that's what we have here. These philosophers of the left-hand path, they, they believe the same things that are taught through all the secret society groups that Jehovah, or God, as we acknowledge him in Christianity, and in much of Western tradition. You see, Jehovah was the bad guy. Lucifer was the good guy. It's the inversion principle, once again. They have it twisted. So they see themselves as the good guys, and of course the church, or the religious notion, as that of the bad guys. The inversion principle, once again at play. So they call it anti-human. They say the church dogmas have an anti-human bias and <laughs> that they, they are the, the ones that are right. And of course, the church dogma is wrong. Let's read on here. The Renaissance would partially, but only partially, compensate for the cultural losses incurred during the medieval epoch. It would not be until the 20th century that the spiritual baggage of the Middle Ages could be dispensed with completely. But even now, the medieval period casts a shadow that can be seen in the shapes of modern-day witch hunters to TV evangelists. Nothing that has made an impact on the course of human culture ever seems to disappear totally. Indeed, the spirituality of the Middle Ages can be seen alive and well on American cable television on a regular basis. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. So now he's making the notion... That the modern day has echoes of this old Middle Age time period. The beliefs, the dogmas associated with the religion. And that this is a bad thing. But 20th century and now 21st century. Well, you see, we're, we're beginning to overcome that now. So now we're at a time when many of these things can finally be left behind, according to this author here. And we see the inversion process. So all of these traditions that we've had, all of these things we know to be good, are all flipped on their head. You see, once again, this is playing the inversion principle, and that's the true definition of Satanism, what Satanism is at its core. It's the inversion of everything, the inversion principle. So calling evil good and good evil, that's part of it. Calling morality bad, and of course, self-indulgence good. That's, that's what they're doing. It's the inversion process. And that underlies all of it. That's this left-hand path. So we are going to get a little bit into the next chapter here that he spoke of. This one is called Lucifer, Lucifer Unbound, The Modern Age and New Understandings. And of course, this ties back to Faust again. We'll see. Let's go ahead and read. Presaging the birth of the historical Faust in Northern Europe, certain social circles in Southern Europe, and especially in Italy, 
were undergoing radical transformations. The northern Italian cities of Florence, Milan, Genoa, and Bologna became the cradles of the modern age in the period of the cultural renewal that we call the Renaissance. Throughout the intellectually depressed period of the Middle Ages, the spiritual treasures of the humanities, the writings of Plato, Aristotle, and other pagan philosophers, had been grudgingly preserved in monasteries or had been cultivated in the intellectual haven provided by a more tolerant Islamic culture. In the West, these treasures were not appreciated for the ideas they contained, but only for their utility in bolstering Christian dogmas or their usefulness as rhetorical textbooks for classical studies. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. You can clearly see this guy's inherent biases here, and his argument does not stand to reason. You see, he's claiming that the Middle Ages, the period of the Middle Ages, depressed these intellectual writings and begrudgingly preserved them in monasteries. Well, they preserved these teachings through the Middle Ages. And this guy's notion is that the Renaissance somehow renewed the growth in these types of ideas and the renewal of these ideas into popularity, which may not be the case at all, really. I think these things existed and were known throughout all the Middle Age periods. Look at what we have, look at the architecture and stuff we have to show for these Middle Ages, before the Renaissance time. We have the Gothic cathedrals and all of these things, all these edifices that were beautifully crafted and preserved a lot of the old ideas in stone they preserved these ideas so that is a false kind of argument he's making here so he says they begrudgingly held this stuff in monasteries and whatnot so you see his bias inherent here he wants to make the claim that it wasn't until the renaissance time period that much of these older more accurate ideas came back into the popular mainstream of things and then it was this stodgy dogmatic christian church that was holding back the progression of these spiritual ideas that's his bias but let's continue on so it says in the decades just before and just following the watershed year of 1500 the western world underwent a number of revolutionary changes Throughout the 15th century, northern Italian guilds and trade associations had, using newly refined financial institutions or banking, been able to build up powerful trading empires with connections to the eastern Mediterranean. There, they did business in centers such as Tyre, which was at the end of trading routes, reaching eastward to India and China. The wealth of this new class of mean and families such as the Medicis, Bourgeois, and Sforzas, allowed them to create a new culture separate from the dominated separate separate from that dominated by the church or the old aristocracy. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. This is what's known as the black nobility in many of the circles here. And many of these powers, these families, excuse me, many of these families still have an awful lot of power today. The Medicis, the Sforzas, the Bourgeois, 
these Italian families, many of them kind of stay in the shadows, but they have a lot more power and influence and sway than you might think. These family groups are part of the power structure in this world, and they have ties to these occult things as well, as we shall see here. But here's what he said. He said that they acquired wealth and power and were able to separate themselves from the domination of the church and the old aristocracy. You see, these were the new royals. Same old new world order nonsense going on again. And in fact, if you trace back the lineage of many of these families, well, we won't do that today, but uh, you'll find they always interconnect with some other ones that you may know in antiquity when you go back to older times. But that's beside the point. Let's continue reading here and we'll see what his his next take is on this. So Mr. Flowers continues, he says, With this new power came new interests in pagan national traditions and pagan rational philosophy. The powerful families of the Florentine Renaissance became interested in things that worked. It was this pragmatism that motivated much of their patronage of the arts and sciences. It is ironic that the most lasting result of the Crusades, the church-inspired wars designed to liberate the sites in Jerusalem, holy to Christians, land from the Muslims, was an opening of Christendom to the economic and cultural influences of Islam and other Eastern civilizations. The Holy Land remained ultimately in Muslim hands. Besides the Crusades, which sent tens of thousands of Christians, including children, to their horrible and useless deaths, the church had committed a number of other acts, which corroded its previously unquestioned position of spiritual authority. The Inquisition and widespread institutional corruption of the priesthood and sacraments of the church. These furthered widespread doubt about the veracity of church authority and dogmas. Well, on that, the topic of that... There came such world-shattering discoveries as Columbus' discovery of a new world, unrecorded in the previously thought to be universal book of knowledge, the Bible, in 1492, or Copernicus's discovery that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the planetary system. Major cosmological underpinnings of the medieval world were turned upside down. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. Once again, you see this guy's biases becoming inherent here. So he's claiming that knowledge of the new world was not recorded in the Bible. Well, <laughs> that's just silly to think in terms like that. Silly to think in terms like that. Of course, it's not going to say anything about America in the Bible. But it, it doesn't necessarily acknowledge a new world as he wants it here, too. I don't know what exactly, what kind of an argument he's trying to make with that. And once again, then he says that the cosmological underpinnings of the medieval world were turned upside down by Copernicus's discovery that the sun was the center of the planetary system. There's still some people today who would dispute that, I'm sure. I'm sure. I know some. But uh, <laughs> that's not the scope of this discussion right now. 
But at any rate, you see, there were some big changes that came around in this period, and this was the onset of what's called the Renaissance period. A restructuring in the thinking of mankind, and of course, this was heralded in by these Italian families who were interested in, quote-unquote, what works. You can change the minds of the people by changing their perception of their reality. That's what works, and that's what was done here. A lot of revelations made during that time period. But let's go ahead and we'll continue on, because I don't want to put words in this guy's mouth. He'll tell you what it is he believes in his own words. So let's continue on. So he says, The final blow to the Middle Ages came with the success of the Protestant Reformation, beginning in 1517. For the first time since the beginning of the medieval period, the absolute ideological authority of the Roman Catholic Church had been challenged effectively in the West. Within a generation, all of the Northern Europe had broken with Rome. The early Renaissance flourished in the protected yet often volatile and fragile havens for learning and the human spirit provided by the northern Italian families of patronage. It was a time of true rebirth. Some were so bold as to attempt the overt revival or renewal of the pagan Greco-Roman cult, but the main purpose of most thinkers was to attempt a synthesis of sophisticated pagan philosophy with medieval Christian symbolism. The dominant philosophy emerging from the Florentine Renaissance was Neoplatonism. In its Renaissance form, this philosophy was to be a pagan system of thought gilded with Christian imagery for the sake of the consumption of the masses of churchmen. It is perhaps shocking, yet manifestly true, that the greatest art treasure of the Vatican itself, the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel, created by the divine Michelangelo, represent Neoplatonic allegory using biblical scenes. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we see where this guy's angle is coming from. So now he's saying that the Renaissance was the restoration of the old mysteries with this veneer of Christian Christian imagery using them as an allegory for the Neoplatonic teachings. Not considering at all that perhaps these ideas are inherent there to begin with, within the Christian scheme of things. Nope, he's saying that's what happened, and that's when all of this art once again took on meaning, real meaning, which doesn't stand to scrutiny when you look at all the older works that came about in the periods of the Dark Ages and Middle Ages that he's disrespecting here and claiming that they had begrudgingly held some of these things in storage for that time, but nothing good came out of that time. Now he's saying it was during this Renaissance period wherein many of the old mysteries here were restored. Essentially, he didn't say it in that those words, but I could tell that that's what's implied here from reading many of these types of accounts from these 
various secret society groups based upon their prejudices and their biases and their beliefs. That's what he's implying. The, the power was restored to the systems in this way. The mysteries were restored. Let's continue reading here. The greatest exponents of Neoplatonism in the Italian Renaissance were Marsilio Ficino and Giovanni Pico de Mirandola. What was most relevant to the further development of the left-hand path in Renaissance thought was the newfound stature of the individual human being and of humanity in general. Ficino wrote an essay called Five Questions Concerning the Mind in 1495, in which he makes it clear, in keeping with pagan philosophy, that the human mind or will is able, through rational means, to liberate and enlighten itself. So far, he is only in agreement with most other pagan systems, east or west, which do not posit the necessity of God's grace in this process. The aim of the mind could still be either belonging to the right-hand path, seeking ultimate union with the divine, or with the left-hand path, seeking permanence and divinity for itself. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. And now you know what it is that these secret society groups believe and what path they stand on. He identifies it right here. The right-hand path, he says, is seeking ultimate union with the divine. The left-hand path is seeking permanence and divinity for itself. You see, all of these people who follow these secret society groups and these mystery school teachings, they all seek the same thing. They want to become God in no uncertain terms. This is the left-hand path by definition. So even if they claim... They're the good guys, and they're seeking this apotheosis. They want to become one of the thousand points of light. They want to be immortalized in this way, become a type of a god-man. This is the left-hand path, by definition. As we see here. So now you know. So even if they claim they're the good guys... And that's their ultimate goal, is to become an ascended master, or to become one of these thousand points of light, to become illumined, illuminated, enlightened. They're following the left-hand path. Let's read on. Perhaps one of the most inspirational documents of the Renaissance relevant to the redevelopment of the left-hand path in the West is Pico de Amarandola's Oration of the Dignity of Man, from 1486. In this oration, which was to be the inaugural speech for a series of disputations concerning his 900 theses at the university in Florence, Pico discusses two major themes, the nature and dignity of humanity and the pursuit of the unity of truth. In the latter... He began syncretizing all philosophical and religious systems to find the unity holding them all together in truth. It is, however, the first theme that concerns us most. Going to pause for a second there, folks, before we get to the first theme which concerns them most. So this guy, one of his major themes 
was what he called the unity of truth, where he began trying to syncretize all philosophies and religions together to find the unity of them together in truth. This is called today ecumenicalism. This is what the Antichrist will do. You see, he will claim to fulfill all the different philosophical and religious components of all these combined religions and philosophies of the world. He will be the one that fulfills all of these. How will this be done? I don't know for sure, but I think it has something to do with transhumanism, that this will be the ultimate fulfillment that the Antichrist claims will be the fulfillment of all scriptures, of all these religions and all these philosophies. That this is our ultimate destiny. This is what all these things we're talking about. I think this is the way they'll try to unify all these religion and religious and philosophical ideas into one universal accepted idea or one world religion. I think it has to do with transhumanism. I reserve the right to be totally wrong about that, but all the evidence points in that direction from what I see now. And this is not a conversation we could have had 15, 20 years ago. You see, it just didn't appear so readily on the world stage as it does now, this whole transhumanist notion, this whole transhumanist movement didn't seem like something that could come to fruition in any kind of a reasonable amount of time. Now, it's not so far off, is it? And we could see all the connections back to the old scriptures, the prophecies, the way that they could maneuver this transhumanist ideology into all of these things. And if you go and look, there is a transhumanist group pertaining to every single religion that we have in this world. There's a Mormon transhumanist group. There's a Christian transhumanist group, Catholic transhumanist group. There are Muslim transhumanist groups. All these major religions have their own transhumanist movements and groups within. So like I said, no matter... How much I would like it to not be the case with everything that I, I look at with this stuff. And I sound like a broken record. It always ends in one of two places, occultism and or transhumanism. They're one and the same. They're tied together. It's the fruition of the great work of these occult fraternities, transhumanism. But let's get back to this because now, you see, that wasn't the thing that he saw as being the important facet of it here. The more important facet, of, the more important theme that this Pico guy discussed was the following. He says, The oration contains a passage in which Pico has the Creator say to man, quote, The nature of all other beings is limited and constrained within the bounds of laws prescribed by us. Thou constrained by no limits in accordance with thine own free will, in whose hand we have placed thee, shalt ordain for thyself the limits of thy nature. Thou shalt have the power, out of thy soul's judgment, to be reborn into the higher forms which are divine." End quote. So he says here, 
Pico holds that humanity finds itself in this world in an unfinished or indeterminate state of being. Humanity stands at the center of creation. It can evolve to the divine or devolve to the bestial. The soul of an individual is what is responsible for these transformations. It is precisely because of the self-transforming nature that mankind can be seen as noble. Man is the only creature not determined by nature, but by will or consciousness. He can exist outside the hierarchy of nature and God in a separate order. I'm going to pause right there. Now you know why they believe the things they believe, why they practice these things they practice. They really think they can exist outside the hierarchy of nature and God in a separate order. That's why they seek to build a holy artificial system in which they can be the gods of this place. They think they can do it better. And this absolutely Stinks to high heaven of transhumanist philosophy, doesn't it? If you study the transhumanist philosophy, it's all based on these same ideas. Man has a self-transforming nature. Self-guided evolution, that's what they call transhumanism. It's a type of self-guided evolution. This is the ultimate hubris. Mankind thinking he can be greater than his creator. Based upon what? The oration of this Pico guy in 1500, 1486, excuse me. This is where they get some of these ideas. It's the hubris of man coming through. You see, man, these, these people who are following this left-hand path, these ones that follow these magical teachings or principles, they think that by their will, if they have a strong enough will, they can step outside and exist outside the hierarchy of nature and God and create their own separate order. They can be God. They have no limits upon them. Really, you have no limits. No limits, huh? So these dark magicians, they think they have no limits. Well, they do have limits. We are human beings, and we do have definite limitations, don't we? In fact, they will argue that they need to overcome these limitations, and that's why they seek this transhumanist notion of things. They think that we have these flaws in our design. And this, of course, is hubris at its greatest greatest evidence. Let's put it that way. Anyway, I want to cover just a little bit more before we sign off here. So let's read on because we're running short on time. So getting back on track here. Next, he talks about what he calls Old Nick. Another side of the Renaissance was shown by the first master of modern politics, Niccolo Machiavelli. His most famous book, The Prince, which was written in 1513, develops a political philosophy radically at odds with the Christian theory. Instead of deriving all power from God, Machiavelli sees that dealings with God must be based on pure faith, while political aims must be pursued in an atmosphere of pure reason. 
in order that the rational and virtuous ends of government may be achieved. The morality of the means used to realize these ends is measured purely in terms of their effectiveness. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. The ends always justify the means with these people. This is moral relativism at its height. This is the Luciferian philosophy, let's be clear. We'll get there. Let's read on. The ends justify the means. <laughs> Gonna pause for a moment there. Okay, he just said the the what was supposed to be the quiet part out loud here in his book. I just said it out loud for you people, uh, just because uh, it was inferred there. I didn't read the next sentence yet, but there it is. He says, the ends justify the means. As a ruler, Machiavelli concludes, it is better to be feared than to be loved, since love depends on the subjects, but the prince has it in his own hands to create fear. The wise prince will rely on what is his own. going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now you know why they try to leverage fear against the masses all the time. They want you afraid. They don't want you to like them or respect them or love them, these political leaders. They don't care about that. That's why we, we by and large, we hate our political leaders, don't we? We really don't like them. Nobody's happy with the jobs that they do. Nobody is happy with how they represent us. This is all on purpose. They don't want you to like them or love them. They don't care about that. They just want you to fear whatever the results of these people not acting in certain ways will be. That's how they maintain control. These are all based upon these Machiavellian ideas. Let's continue on. So he says his cosmology, at least for political purposes, did not place God in a central position. He saw political affairs as largely the result of the interplay between virtue and fortune, or fate. The ideas and theories of Machiavelli had a profound effect on the advent of the modern world. His words have echoed throughout history since his death, as he dared to write what others only kept hidden in their hearts. Machiavelli did not attack religion or Christianity directly, and always focused his attention on the practice of virtue and the good. But because he largely ignored the importance of the church and God in his political theory, he was seen as a threat to the power of the religion. This, which may have earned him his cognomen, Old Nick. The Renaissance represents the infancy of the modern age, which would eventually allow for the practice of more left-hand path philosophies. The modern age, with its increased interest in the stature and nobility of the individual human spirit, along with reason, coupled with a new valorization of nature or physicality as the matrix of divinity rather than a barrier or hindrance to it all, led to later developments in the left-hand path. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And what he's saying here is all inversion as well. That's not at all what is going on with the left-hand path. It's not about the ascension of the individual man. It's all about collectivism. You see how it's the absolute inversion of what they think or what they say, what they believe. They've deluded themselves. These ones that are practicing these left-hand philosophies, they've deluded themselves. They think it's the opposite of what it is. They think that it's through this path they're taking that will lead to their individuation, that they will become gods. 
themselves, the individual, when the ultimate ends of their actions lead to this collectivist ideology. You see, the ultimate goal, the ultimate end state of transhumanism is the collective consciousness of mankind, the Borg mind, the hive mind. That is not individuality. That is not an individual becoming a god. That's not how this ends. It's the absolute opposite of what it is they think, that they've deluded themselves into thinking. They think they're the good guys. They think they're doing the right thing. They think that it's their ultimate destiny to become gods, that they can do this. That's not how it's going to end for them. Let's read on and we're going to close it up here. Lucifer and the Enlightenment. In reality, the Renaissance had been as much or more a revival of ancient things or a continuation of medieval ones than what it was an innovation of new forms of thought. More radical solutions were sought by the liberated minds of the 17th and 18th centuries. Tradition of all sorts was suspect of gross error, and scientific methods were pursued by which each individual could prove the nature of himself and the world, seen and unseen around him. If Satan, the adversary of God, is ever to be equated with the independent, incarnate human mind in a rationally enlightened state of being, then it is in the Enlightenment that he finds his first home since the advent of Christianity in Europe. The foundations of the Enlightenment rest with such thinkers as Francis Bacon in England and René Descartes in France. In his major work, Novum Organum, Bacon championed a purely inductive method of reasoning which challenged all forms of received or revealed knowledge. All intellectual or spiritual authority was questioned more radically than ever before. Descartes, on the other hand, attempted to create a mathematical system of deductive reasoning. His most famous formulation, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, is in fact one of the keystones to any left-hand path philosophy. What can be known with the most certainty about reality is our existence as individual entities. This brings psychocentrism again to the forefront of Western thought. Descartes a, himself realized the diabolical implications of his ideas on some level and tried for much of his life to reconcile his system with Christianity. But the genie was out of the bottle. By 1687, Isaac Newton had published his Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy in which he presented a unified, rational, coherent theory of the mechanics of the universe as known in his time. So I'm going to pause there, folks. So once again, he's playing on this inversion principle. We see where they're claiming that those that practice the left-hand path, well, they only, they challenge these things that are said to be received or revealed knowledge. They challenge this stuff with purely inductive methods of reasoning, like scientific method. That's not true at all, because these people claim in their own teachings that they can acquire mystical, magical powers, that some spirits reveal information to them, that some powers, clairvoyant powers or such thing, reveal information to them. This is not something you can 
inductively reason out. You can't true, truly prove with any type of scientific methodology or anything of the sort. So you see the inversion at play again. Of course, it's okay if they believe these things and tell people they know this stuff based upon that experiential factor. But this is the argument they make against spiritual rationality of any sort. And we didn't even get to the idea or notion of paradise lost. This has actually become a longer read than what I thought it was going to be, so maybe we'll continue this at another time. But we see here this Faustian path. It aligns greatly with what is known as the left-hand path. And we see how it's the inversion principle at play. And everything these people believe that they are doing and that they are somehow justified and right in their actions and their directions they take, that's going to lead them to this ultimate power. It's all a lie. Born in the pits of hell. And they've deceived themselves and they've fallen lock, stock, and barrel into this trap. And they're lunging forward headlong into this whole line of reasoning. They make these claims. They, they have these beliefs. And they act upon them. They think they're the good guys. They've deceived themselves. They think that this is somehow a method of acquiring power, that it works. But it always ends very badly for them. And they don't seem to want to accept that or see that. Well, they just didn't do it right the last time. It's, it's like the whole notion of communism. They're just not doing it right. <laughs> they just have never done it right. It's never worked in the history of the world right? Well, they, they just haven't done it right. We'll do it right this time. Yeah, okay. It always has the same end results. It's the same thing with this stuff. Apply a little bit of common sense and reason to it, and you can know that. I mean, they even admit to it in their own writings, but somehow they still wind up following these paths, these dark paths, and winding up the worse for it. And oftentimes, they make the world the worse for it as well and bring others down with them. And this is why it's important to explore these avenues of thought, because sometimes some of this stuff sounds attractive to people. A lot of people would like to have worldly power and knowledge, and maybe be able to use some type of magical principles to get the things that they want. But you know what? It's a shortcut, and it's a shortcut that doesn't work out for the good in the long run of things in many instances. And so use that as an example. What happens when you take shortcuts with things? There's no shortcut to the hard work of this spiritual battle that we're in. There's no shortcuts. It's all about a relationship with God. And the path to get there, it's a simple one. It doesn't have to be a complicated one. But at the same token, it's one where you have to actually put in some effort towards this relationship with God. There's no shortcut to it, and you can't just skip past that and exist separate from God, like these people would believe, and become God yourself. It simply doesn't work that way. No created thing can ever be greater than its creator. It defies logic and reason to think so, but these people seem to pursue avenues of thought wherein they think somehow they are made without limitations simply because they were told that they are made in the image of God, which, although that is true, it doesn't mean we are without limits. We most certainly have limits. 
We can see that. It's very clear. It's reasonable to think in that term. But as defined here by this magician who follows the left-hand path, the right-hand path seeks unification with God. The left-hand path seeks to become God themselves and separate themselves from God and be gods themselves. That's the whole notion here. That's the secret society group teachings in a nutshell, all of them. They all teach the same things. It's the Luciferian philosophy, and it's a lie born in the pit of hell. And this Faustian path, same thing. There's a reason it's called the Faustian bargain, and it always ends badly. So we see some of the roots of where this comes from, and we can determine that there are people who actually follow some of these principles in certain ways. And it doesn't end well for them, but they think maybe this time they'll do it right, and somehow it'll end differently. Well, that defies logic and reason, doesn't it? But anyway, that's all the time I have for tonight, folks. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.